In November 2020, a senior official on the National Security Council exited the Eisenhower Executive Office building just west of the White House. Let's call him Mark. As always, Mark walked along the green grass of the ellipse toward his car. But that evening, something unexpected happened. A piercing sound erupted in Mark's ears. His entire body went numb and his limbs felt heavy. His speech became slurred and nonsensical. By the time he reached his car, Mark knew he couldn't drive. So he ordered a ride on his phone, setting his destination to the nearest hospital. In the emergency room, doctors ordered an MRI and ran blood work. The results came back normal, so Mark's symptoms were chalked up to a migraine. Fortunately, within two hours, Mark regained his ability to speak, though he left the hospital with a severe headache that lasted through the next day. A few days later, Mark got a call from a colleague who told him about mysterious symptoms affecting the diplomats at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, and officials' growing suspicion that it stemmed from some kind of attack. The more his colleague explained, the more Mark wondered about his recent experience. Perhaps he hadn't suffered from a migraine. Maybe he was the latest victim of Havana Syndrome. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Havana Syndrome. Last time, we covered the historically fraught relationship between the U.S. and Cuba and how it grew more complicated when American diplomats began experiencing strange health issues. This time, we'll discuss three theories that explore who and what could have caused the mysterious ailment. The first considers the possibility of sonic weapons that inflicted auditory hallucinations and concussion symptoms. Our second theory examines another type of weapon, an electromagnet that emits microwave radiation. Finally, we'll discuss the possibility that Havana syndrome may have simply been the result of mass psychogenic illness. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In November 2016, the U.S. Embassy in Havana had been open for just over a year. On the ground, American diplomats struggled to build a positive relationship with Cuba. Decades of distrust had yielded high tensions, which skyrocketed when Donald Trump won the White House. No one was certain how the new administration would handle the American foothold in Cuba. It was right around this time that the thing took hold. Beginning on December 30th, Americans at the Havana Embassy started to experience a barrage of unexplained symptoms, piercing headaches, dizziness, 
balance issues, memory loss. The first victims were undercover CIA officers, but soon State Department diplomats and their families were affected too. Because the initial incidents centered around Havana, some politicians within the Trump administration quickly decided Cuba was targeting Americans. So the U.S. effectively shuttered diplomatic relations with Cuba in early 2018. But the cases didn't stop in 2018. To date, there have been over 100 instances of what we now call Havana Syndrome worldwide. Several involve citizens of other countries, but those most affected are U.S. government employees and their families. Since 2016, scientists and medical experts have struggled to explain what causes the mysterious symptoms. After ruling out drugs and environmental toxins, many experts in America and abroad honed in on one theory, that the symptoms are triggered by sonic weapons emitting dangerous sound waves. And in 2017, they just might have caught the sound on tape. By that point, over a dozen cases of Havana syndrome had emerged among the small community of Americans in Havana. So it wasn't shocking when another diplomat began experiencing symptoms. We'll call him Aaron. Aaron was in his home's atrium when a loud metallic noise filled the air. By this point, he had likely heard about the mysterious ailment afflicting his colleagues. Like many others, he was skeptical. It could all be in the victims' heads. Yet the sound in the atrium was very real, and it literally made his brain hurt. Aaron quickly called U.S. Embassy Security. When the officer arrived at his home, he too could hear the sound. He even caught it on tape. The recording seemed to offer proof that sound may have been a cause of Havana syndrome. At the time, the theory didn't seem too outlandish. Studies have shown that loud noises can cause damage to the inner ear, resulting in hearing loss and balance issues. In fact, people have been utilizing sound as a tool or weapon since at least the 1990s. Today, high-frequency sound devices are sold as an alternative to pepper spray. And on a larger scale, sound can be used for crowd control. One particularly memorable case occurred in the Philippines in 2015. To disperse protesters at an anti-government event, police cranked loud music over loudspeakers, specifically Katy Perry. But that's not even the most advanced use of sound as a weapon. In the early 2000s, a company called Genesis developed a long-range acoustic device, or LRAD. This device produces extremely loud sounds that can be focused into a narrow beam. They're colloquially known as sound cannons, meaning the sound waves can be aimed at a specific target far away and be received intact. LRADs were intended to allow Navy ships to communicate across long distances, but they aren't just used to send military messages. LRADs have been used by law enforcement to break up crowds at big events, like the Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson and the Dakota Access Pipeline protests at Standing Rock. They can be a tool for suppressing free speech or people the government wants quieted. But unlike Havana Syndrome, these LRADs impact a lot of people, 
not just one, and they require a lot of power. When police use them, they're often mounted on large armored cars with generators. That's not something that would go unnoticed, especially in a foreign neighborhood full of anxious American diplomats. If the Cuban LRAD or a similar device was hidden far away, it would certainly have to be even louder. Audible sound waves dissipate rapidly to cause even temporary hearing loss or ear pain. The sound would have to be over 120 decibels, the equivalent of a bulldozer or a motorcycle. And to travel through a solid surface like wall, it would need to be over 130 decibels, the equivalent of fireworks or a jet engine to cause any real harm. It would need an incredible targeting system or that kind of noise would deafen everyone in the vicinity, not just one specific person. In cases of Havana syndrome, victims often stood near others who couldn't hear anything at all. So to recap, for audible sound to cause any lasting symptoms, it would have to be very loud, very targeting, and fairly close by. So not likely. Though some journalists proposed a different version of the theory, that not all of the sound emitted by the sonic weapon was audible. There, we encounter similar problems. It's almost impossible to direct low-frequency sound waves at a single target. And even when that was done in a 2002 study, the worst side effect anyone experienced from low-frequency sound was mild discomfort. On the other end, we have high-frequency sounds, like a dog whistle. But the higher a sound goes, the shorter distance it can travel. For example, an ultrasound device uses high-frequency waves and has to touch the person's body to have an impact. Even a microscopic gap between an ultrasound and human skin can be enough to render it ineffective. And lastly, no sound wave of any frequency has ever been known to cause symptoms of a concussion one of the most commonly reported symptoms of Havana syndrome. That's true. The New York Times interviewed an acoustics expert and physicist, Jürgen Altman, about this exact issue. Altman told the Times, I know of no acoustic effect that can cause concussion symptoms. Considering the physical limitations of sound waves, it seems unlikely that sonic attacks caused Havana syndrome. While I agree the science doesn't add up, there's still the noise our victim Aaron recorded during his attack. That's where things take a comical turn. After a few U.S. politicians blamed Cuba for the attacks, the Cuban government formed an official committee composed of their nation's top scientists. U.S. officials sent Aaron's recording to this committee. After analyzing the sound, a Cuban environmental physicist made a fascinating discovery. The mysterious metallic sound had the same frequency as the noise produced by Gryllus assimilis, the Jamaican field cricket. The scientist's discovery was corroborated by an unexpected source, Aaron's housekeeper. She grew up on a farm, so the second she heard the diplomat's recording, she identified the field cricket as the culprit. I think we've sufficiently ruled out sonic weapons as the culprit of Havana Syndrome. But while sound waves may not be to blame, there is another kind of wave that might be. 
an electromagnetic one. And there's one country in particular with a history of aiming them at spies. Coming up, Russia enters the picture. And now, back to the story. In 2018, Robin Garfield believed his family was under attack. A U.S. Commerce Department officer, Garfield had been stationed in Shanghai, China for a year and a half. By this point, he'd likely heard about Havana Syndrome on the news. Perhaps it all felt foreign, until a case popped up in Guangzhou in March. Although Guangzhou was almost a thousand miles from where Garfield was stationed, it was the first attack in his same country. And fear fully swooped in when Garfield's wife and children started experiencing headaches and balance problems. When they reported their symptoms, Garfield and his family were evacuated back to the U.S. They were sent to a specialist in Pennsylvania to get tested alongside other Havana Syndrome victims. But being home didn't end their terror. Back in the States, Garfield's wife woke up one night to a piercing, painful noise. Garfield immediately packed up his family and went to a hotel. But a few hours later, at 2 a.m., it happened again. This time, Garfield checked on his children in the next room. Both of his kids were asleep, but writhing in their beds. Frightened, Garfield listened closely. Initially, he couldn't hear anything, but when he leaned down beside them, he heard a sound similar to running water. It was only audible when his head was right next to his children's. By then, Garfield had had enough. For the second time that night, he gathered his family and left. Even by Havana Syndrome standards, Robin Garfield's story is terrifying. A pain-inducing sound allegedly followed his family from one country to another, then from their home to a hotel. As we established, it's unlikely for sound waves to covertly hurt people, but those aren't the only invisible vibrations that can impact the human body. That brings us to theory number two. Havana syndrome could be the result of an electromagnetic attack using microwaves, the energy waves themselves, not the kitchen appliances. To understand this theory, let's go back to science class. When they travel, sound waves need to be transmitted through something that vibrates, like the molecules in air or water. This is why sound can't be heard in space. Electromagnetic waves, on the other hand, do not need to vibrate matter to travel. They can move through the void of space or even through solid objects like glass, paper, and concrete. Picture microwaves, radar, x-rays, and visible light. Microwaves are especially versatile. This is why, in 2020, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine concluded that microwaves could be the culprit of Havana Syndrome. Some experts even told the New York Times that at high intensities, microwaves could cause nausea, headaches, vertigo, and even brain damage. As for microwaves causing noises heard inside someone's head, that's where something called the Fry Effect comes in. 
In the 1960s, a scientist named Alan Fry discovered that a tiny burst of microwaves aimed at a person's ear can raise its temperature by a millionth of a degree. That increase, though incredibly small, is enough to make the moisture molecules in the ear move, producing the sensation of sound. So all symptoms of Havana syndrome potentially line up with experiencing a very strong electromagnetic microwave. But that begs another question. Who was blasting these invisible microwaves at American diplomats? For some, that answer was clear. Russia. Let's go back a few decades. In the early 1950s, the Cold War between America and the Soviet Union had been underway for a few years. Tensions between the two countries were understandably high, particularly at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, which remained in operation despite the conflict. Still, the U.S. had the upper hand, meaning relations were fairly stable until 1953. During a routine background radiation check at the embassy in Moscow, the scanner went off. They detected high levels of electromagnetic waves. Oddly, they only appeared on certain floors of the building. U.S. officials looked into it and discovered the source location, a residential building about 100 yards away. From there, the Soviets were blasting intense microwave beams at the American embassy. The microwaves emitted became known as the Moscow Signal. Though there is very little information about the official U.S. investigation, America concluded the Soviets didn't intend to hurt people. They just wanted to listen. The microwaves activated surveillance bugs they'd hidden inside the embassy. Fast forward to 2018 when those familiar with the Moscow signal began to wonder if the Russians were responsible for Havana syndrome. Russia and Cuba had worked together during the Cold War. Maybe they were collaborating again. Not so fast. While at first glance, the Moscow signal seems to support our second theory, it actually proves that microwaves couldn't have been responsible. According to declassified documents, the Soviets blasted the Moscow signal at the U.S. Embassy for upwards of 20 years. In all that time, most U.S. government employees didn't experience any symptoms of Havana syndrome. But here's what's weird. Despite knowing about the Moscow signal for decades, U.S. government kept it a secret from embassy staff until 1976. And in the years since, many people came forward blaming various diseases and physical ailments on the microwave radiation they unknowingly suffered in Moscow. The way the U.S. government handled the ordeal was definitely unethical. But it's likely they did it because they didn't want to start a panic. Upon discovering the Moscow signal in 1953, U.S. government scientists secretly studied the health effects of microwave exposure. Their conclusion? The level of exposure to microwaves at the American embassy was harmless. And the complaints from employees in Moscow weren't any different from those at other Eastern European embassies. Nevertheless, some folks remain skeptical. Many because they simply don't know how microwaves work. And that's where we can help. 
Picture a microwave oven, which uses microwaves to heat food. Some of you are probably picturing the energy waves bouncing around inside the oven, passing through the food and heating it from the inside out. But that's not the case. Remember how we said that electromagnetic waves don't need molecules to travel? Well, this doesn't mean that molecules don't affect how they travel. Even though microwaves can pass through certain materials, like glass or paper, they cannot pass through metal. And when they pass through water, the liquid absorbs them, producing heat. For example, if you put a bowl of water in a microwave oven next to a bowl of mac and cheese and microwave them both together, the water bowl will come out hotter because it had more water molecules absorbing the microwaves than the bowl of mac and cheese. The same would happen if high-frequency microwaves were directed at people. Even if the waves were strong enough to penetrate our brains, our skin, which contains a lot of water, would absorb some of them first. This would result in obvious skin irritation. None of the Havana Syndrome victims experienced these kinds of symptoms. And in regards to a weapon, even one specifically designed to blast people with microwaves would have limitations. For one, the device would require a ton of power. You'd need a 50-pound gasoline-powered generator to power a standard portable microwave oven. Even then, the range of such a device would be relatively low if weaponized, around 10 or 20 feet, so close you couldn't miss it. But let's say you got around that. You have a sufficient power source, an invisible microwave device, there's no metal to deflect the waves, and you fire it directly into a target's ear so the resulting effects on the skin won't be as noticeable. Even in that scenario, the sounds produced by the fry effect would be nothing like a swarm of locusts or a teapot on steroids. They'd actually resemble a gentle clicking noise. Once again, the science doesn't line up with the evidence. But how can we be sure Russia hasn't secretly developed technology that could cause real harm? They've been using and researching microwave technology since well before the 1950s, when America discovered the Moscow signal. Maybe they've made a breakthrough. You aren't alone in your suspicions. The CIA and the NSA monitored covert Russian communications channels for months after the emergence of Havana Syndrome. They also looked into dozens of cases of Havana Syndrome across the globe, searching high and low for any evidence of foreign interference. But in January 2022, a CIA task force concluded a years-long study. In the end, they determined Havana Syndrome is most likely not the result of a worldwide conspiracy spearheaded by Russia or any hostile foreign power. They simply couldn't find evidence of Russian involvement. Throwing out the Russians, the Cubans, even the Chinese for good measure, there has to be some explanation. Havana Syndrome has affected more than 100 government employees and their families. Even years later, some people are still experiencing symptoms that make it difficult to go about their daily lives. They can't all be making it up. I agree. The symptoms of Havana Syndrome seem to be very real, but that doesn't mean the syndrome itself is. Coming up, 
are victims of Havana syndrome actually just suffering from hallucinations? Now, back to the story. In July 1518, a woman referred to as Frau Trofea stepped out into the street in her German town of Strasbourg and started to dance. She danced and danced, flinging her arms in the air, jumping from foot to foot. But there was no joy on her face. As minutes turned into hours and Trofea continued to dance, people grew concerned. It seemed Trofea was incapable of stopping. Finally, she collapsed from sheer exhaustion. But it didn't stop there. After she'd rested, Frau Trofea sprang to her feet once again and resumed her manic dance. She kept at it for days, only pausing when her body couldn't continue. And if that wasn't disturbing enough, others soon caught on. Within a week, 30 people joined her. They too were consumed by the need to gyrate in the streets. With no music to be heard, they danced through pain, injury, and exhaustion. And though they were miserable, their numbers kept growing. Authorities had no idea what to do. Someone suggested that perhaps the group just needed to dance it out, so they let it be. The city set up public halls so dancers could get off the streets. They hired musicians to play local favorites. They even brought in professional dancers to keep everyone going. But it only made things worse. By the end of the month, nearly 400 people had been struck by the dancing plague. They boogied joylessly, sweating in the summer heat, begging for an end, but unable to stop. Eventually, some dropped dead from exhaustion. One source claims that as many as 15 people died per day as the dancing went on. By late August, the city of Strasbourg had enough. They packed the afflicted into wagons and took them to a healing shrine to pray the dance away. Miraculously, it seemed to work. In early September, the dancing epidemic started to subside. The dancing plague of 1518 was not the first, nor the last, mysterious dancing epidemic. The earliest recorded took place on Christmas Eve in 1021, when a German priest cursed a dancing crowd to continue for an entire year, which they did. Another happened in 1374 and spread up the Rhine River from Germany into France, affecting thousands. Many theories have tried to explain these types of phenomena, but over the years, experts have come to a general consensus. Mass psychogenic illness. Mass psychogenic illness used to be called mass hysteria, but it was renamed due to negative association with the word hysteria, which seems to suggest it's all made up. However, experts agree that those suffering from it are experiencing real symptoms that can last for years. In the past, manifestations of the affliction were often motor-based, like muscle contractions, shaking, or you guessed it, dancing. But modern-day examples tend to be sensory-based, encompassing things like dizziness, headaches, nausea, and fatigue. It often occurs within tightly knit groups who are under some sort of pressure, like schools, factories, military bases, or recently reopened foreign embassies. 
The best theory on its origin is that one person has an unusual health incident and believes something strange caused it. They spread this idea to someone close by. That person becomes obsessed with the thought that they too might catch the ailment. Lo and behold, they start to experience symptoms. In short, as the idea spreads throughout a community, so do the symptoms. In the case of the 1518 Dancing Plague, the people of Strasbourg had gone through a series of famines and were constantly beset upon by outbreaks of smallpox and syphilis. These stressors created a prime environment for mass psychogenic illness to take hold. The trigger? A local rumor that people who didn't appease St. Vitus, the patron saint of dancers, would be struck with a dancing curse. When we look back to when Havana Syndrome first appeared, we can see the same factors at play. The first case started mere weeks after the 2016 U.S. presidential election, a time of great uncertainty for the U.S. government employees stationed in Havana. Not only were they combating decades of hostility remaining from the Cold War, they also knew that Cuban intelligence was spying on them, trying to figure out who the secret CIA officers were, harassing the diplomats and making them all feel ill at ease. Then they had a new administration and impending changes from the top. In the midst of this, the first case hit. After that, word spread quickly. Rumors of mysterious attacks flew amid formal requests for diplomats to come forward if they experienced anything unusual. Suddenly, cases popped up left and right. People recorded alien-like sounds they believed could trigger the loss of certain abilities, like reading or walking. The media picked up the most sensational stories and broadcast them around the clock. Attacks proliferated, occurring not only at work, but in the employees' own homes. According to researchers Robert W. Bailo and Robert E. Bartholomew, there were some who reported fear of going to bed at night because they worried they'd be attacked in their sleep. If we look at other details around Havana Syndrome, a pattern of unlikely coincidences starts to emerge. For one, the first three victims were all CIA officers. At the time, people thought this meant someone was targeting spies, but let's think about that for a moment. If a foreign power really was trying to root out undercover officers, what was the likelihood they could correctly identify three operatives right off the bat? Even if they had pulled off an unprecedented feat of espionage, why wouldn't they sprinkle in a few diplomats so as not to reveal their sources? There's also the symptoms, which varied from patient to patient. Some described hearing a piercing squeal at the onset of symptoms, others a metallic grinding. Some victims lost their balance, others had vision problems, and some experienced extreme insomnia. The symptoms only had this in common. They were experienced every day by millions of people. Otherwise, for the vast majority of occurrences, no specific cause has been identified at least as of early 2023. And in order to diagnose mass psychogenic illness, there has to be no other explanation. In 
In the case of Havana syndrome, scores of professionals sought to explain the phenomenon for years. Doctors ran test after test, but never found conclusive evidence of any physical damage to any of the victims. Both the CIA and the FBI assembled task forces to investigate the phenomenon as well. They traveled the world, ripping out floorboards for evidence of hidden devices or contaminants. In some cases, they found explanations for certain symptoms, faulty wiring or ultrasonic pest repellers broadcasting high-pitched noises. But neither task force found evidence of a mass conspiracy, and they both concluded that psychological causes were the most likely culprit. In the future, we may uncover information that points to some kind of politically motivated attack, but as it stands, I have to admit that our third conspiracy theory is the only one that seems to adequately explain Havana Syndrome. I agree. The important question now is, what do we do about it? The fact remains that dozens of people are still suffering from debilitating symptoms that doctors haven't been able to resolve. To answer that, we need to look at the ways past cases of mass psychogenic illness ended. Maybe that means taking them to a healing spring, or maybe it means remaining calm and waiting for the stressful circumstances to pass. Then, often, the symptoms will disappear on their own. Beyond treating the condition, we, as a society, should also look at how we can prevent it from taking hold in the first place. With the proliferation of global media, ideas have the power to travel quickly. In the case of Havana Syndrome specifically, media outlets broadcasted hundreds of sensationalized stories to already anxious government workers in tense situations. What could have stayed localized to Havana ended up spreading throughout the globe. Articles leaned into the juiciest explanations and featured supposed experts who speculated that unconventional weapons could be the cause. As a result, Many in the United States government felt pressured or empowered to blame Cuba. This undoubtedly worsened diplomatic relations between the two countries. Havana Syndrome is a lesson in many things, the most meaningful being our brains are powerful tools and they can make threats seem like a reality. So, unless we want to keep repeating the same mistakes, journalists need to adhere to higher standards Otherwise, they can unintentionally stoke global conflicts or maybe even trigger new cases of mass psychogenic illness. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on Havana Syndrome, amongst the many sources we used, we found Havana Syndrome by Robert W. Bailo and Robert E. Bartholomew to be extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau, 
Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Danny Messerschmidt, edited by Wendelin Sabroso and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Thank you.